Hello again, everyone, and welcome to it. It is the Derek Henry Podcast for the 11th of November, November, good God, of January 2024. Happy Thursday to you. That means we're almost to the weekend, so you know what? I'm allowed to... It's been... I don't know that I... I need one of those. It's been this many days since I screwed up the day or the year or the month or whatever the hell it is. Yeah. Someday I'm going to come on here and give the wrong name. That's just how it's going to work out. Anyway, welcome to the program. Don't forget to check out the Weekend Effin' Review, patreon.com slash Podcast or locals, wait, no, derekhunter.locals.com. Admittedly, there's much more going on at Patreon, although I try to make it on both, and then some things are just better. They just don't load as well on the local thing, so I make them open to everybody on the Patreon site, so you can check them out. They probably do for updated photos of something going on in my life so i'll do that very soon plus the contest coming on monday anyway enough of that crap let us get started with the program we uh do have a lot of stuff to get to and a bunch of things to talk about i've got to talk about the the ever-evolving story about the secretary of defense lloyd austin it is how is this allowed to happen how is this administration not embarrassed they are sort of embarrassed, I guess, but not more embarrassed. And how is it that nobody's been fired? How is it that nobody's been fired? The Agency Franche Press, AFP, they have a story. Their headline, Biden and Dark over Defense Chief's Cancer for Months. Yes, the Secretary of Defense has prostate cancer. No scandal there, per se. People get sick, and luckily most prostate cancers are you know, treatable. But for months, the four months part is the part that you're sitting there, you got to scratch your head. You're going, what? For months? So what do they report? President Joe Biden was kept in the dark over his defense secretary's cancer diagnosis and subsequent hospitalizations. Note the letter S at the end of this. I don't know if it's sloppy writing or what have you, but the S at the end of hospitalization implies multiple. So maybe they're just talking about the procedure that he went under and then he had to go back to the hospital because he had an infection. Assuming they're telling us the truth now, which is, I suppose, a it's not a real safe assumption, but whatever. Going on that, maybe that's what it means. But it could also mean that he's been in and out of the hospital for months, over the course of months, and nobody bothered to tell anybody. So... Uh, the White House admitted Tuesday as details of Lloyd Austin's deeply unusual. Boy, they just do anything to protect this guy. It's deeply unusual. No, it's wildly unacceptable. And it's a sign of an administration, a staff of an administration that really doesn't have a whole lot of respect for the president of the United States. They're not really worried about keeping the president in the loop. They don't really give a damn about any of that. No. He's more of a figurehead. Maybe you, you tell some people, but there's no reason to tell the president. He's a, he's a goof. He's a this. He's a that. The 70-year-old's failure to disclose his hospitalization has prompted an extraordinary row in Washington and could be embarrassing for Biden. 
who faces multiple foreign crises, in his re-election campaign year, including Israel and Ukraine. I love it. It could be embarrassing. Don't worry. The people with the press credentials will circle the wagon soon enough. They're just looking for some kind of shiny object to immediately try to shift their attention to. As Defense Secretary, career soldier Austin is personally overseeing military deployments to try and contain fallout from the Israel-Hamas war, which has sparked violence against American forces in Iraq and Syria, as well as attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea. Not to mention the fact that there are still, what, 10 to 12 Americans being held hostage by, by Hamas? They're already starting to forget that, or hoping you will forget that. But no, we will not forget that. This is problematic. So this was obviously a topic of discussion, shall we say, at the White House press briefing. Have you noticed, by the way, there was a controversy. There's like a worry, concern, uh, headbutting, two different camps. Corinne Jean-Pierre, the historic Corinne Jean-Pierre, she's historically bad, who is at least technically on paper, the holder of the White House press secretary title, is now always joined at the White House press briefing, which is her gig. It's her one moment to shine. She's always joined by John Kirby, the spokesman for, I think he's the State Department now under Obama. He was the Pentagon. He's a retired admiral. He's a disgrace to the military, what have you. But He's always there now. Why is that? There was a, you know, does she need the help? Of course she needs help. She's horrible. She can't communicate to save her life. She's one, she is the worst communicator I've ever seen in my life in that podium. And make it worse, she wears this like glittery gold eyeshadow. I think that you put it on the top of your eyelid so it shows off mostly when you blink. And she's looking down constantly, reading from her binder. So all you see is gold from her eyes. Like, okay, we recognize. And she can't read very well either. So you're sitting there, you're you're, you're sounding like a a stop. You sound like somebody's hitting your back. You're stopping and starting. And you are lost as far as what you're supposed to be saying. You should have this stuff down by now. And you've got this gold eyeshadow on that causes everybody to notice that you're looking down reading and not speaking at all off the cuff or from knowledge or memory or what have you. I Personally, I posited this a, a few months ago. I think that she should paint eyeballs on her eyelids so that when she's looking down, at least it, to, for a second, it looks like she's looking up. Because she can't look up, make eye contact with people, and give the official position of the Biden administration because she doesn't know it. She has to read it from the three-ring binder. Anyway, there's controversy because she's so historic because of the color of her skin and her sexuality, and now she's being sort of edged out by a white dude. Ugh, right? The worst. Come on, just the worst. And uh, it's only because she has to be. It's only because she's incompetent at her job. It's nothing personal. Nothing personal at all. It's that she's wildly incompetent at her job. Anyway, the uh, retired Admiral John Kirby was at the White House again yesterday. They both fielded questions on this. I have audio from both. But 
you can tell more and more the actual news of the day. The clips from the White House are of John Kirby. What's really telling is they'll never admit to it. But the White House press corps, the left-wing White House press corps, they'd much rather have questions answered by John Kirby. Because he, he at least, he's still full of it, just like, just like Corinne Jean-Pierre's binder is. But it makes for better audio and video if the person talking to you is actually talking to you rather than haltingly reading from you. Especially it makes for better video. If Corinne Jean-Pierre didn't suck at her job, they wouldn't have to do this. Anyway, Peter Ducey of Fox News had a very serious and important question for Admiral Kirby. Now, what you're going to hear is a very basic question, straightforward, and then you're going to hear a word salad. It's like one of those Mexican restaurants where they, you order the guacamole and they come over and make it at your table. This is, or the really fancy restaurants where they come over and they toss your salad and put it all together and mix it up. And would you like some cheese on the? Uh, that's what's going to come out of John Kirby's mouth. He's just going to toss a word salad because there is no good answer other than, you know what, we're really pissed off at the Secretary of Defense. But they can't be pissed off at the Secretary of Defense. This administration doesn't hold anybody to account. You hold one person to account, and then people are going to start wondering why it is you didn't hold these other people to account. And then when you get into the world of the identity politics that the left likes to play and you notice certain things about Lloyd Austin relative to, say, Secretary Mayor Pete, who was AWOL for three months and nobody noticed as the supply chain collapsed, then there are other uncomfortable questions. And those uncomfortable questions can't be asked about a guy who is on record praising his relationship with segregationists from back when he first got into the United States Senate if you know what I'm saying. Anyway, I know you're smart. I'll let that marinate. And let us listen to uh, Peter Ducey and John Kirby. Okay, thank you for all the detail on that. But more broadly, why should we believe anything that this administration tells us about anything ever again? I think we all recognize, and I think the Pentagon has been very, very honest with themselves about uh, the... um, the challenge to, to, to credibility by what by what has transpired here and by what and by uh, uh, how 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 hard it was for them to be fully transparent with the American people. I think we all recognize that. And and wait, wait now, just give me a second now. I, I know you got another one coming here, but but we all recognize that this didn't unfold the way it should have on so many levels, not just the notification process up the chain of command, but the transparency issue. We all recognize that. And, and I think we all want to make sure we learn from that. I, uh, it's up to you and your colleagues, and it's up to the American people to determine you know, how much they're going uh, to ascribe what happened here to our credibility on every single issue. But in, in every way, Secretary Austin has been an exceptional defense secretary, and he still has the full faith and confidence of the commander-in-chief. Uh, he has led uh, the department at an incredibly dangerous time for uh, our national security interests and those of our allies and partners. He's led the department in a very... Has he? Has he? For months, he's been... I mean, maybe he has. I don't know. But I can also say with rather a uh, bit of certainty that John Kirby doesn't know either. It's abundantly clear, if we learned anything this week, that nobody at the White House seems to know. 
that they had to send out a brief. They had to send out a, a memo from the chief of staff saying to other cabinet secretaries, if you guys are dying, you got to let us know. If you guys are sick, you got to let us know. If you guys are going to, I don't know, go on vacation, you kind of got to let us know. There's a chain of command. You can't just go not show up to work because you're on vacation. You, you, you go, hey, show up back to work a week later. And everybody goes, what the hell? I called the hospitals. We didn't know. We, we assumed you quit. And you just ghosted us. I'm like, no, nah, I was on vacation. Did you get the vacation? Did you ask for the vacation? Did you tell anybody you're on vacation? Why, why would I do that? Why would anybody do that? Well, because that's how things are. Now, mid-level management is one thing. Secretary of Defense is something else entirely, a little bit more important. And yet, our Secretary of Defense can just disappear willy-nilly. Nobody knows where he is. and nobody. What's dis- most disturbing, maybe, is nobody noticed. Nobody in the White House noticed. Well, it's not uncommon for uh, the secretaries to send low-level or mid-level people under them to briefings at the White House rather than them. I get it. If you're going to you send the deputy undersecretary of insignificance or whatever to uh, fill your shoes if it's a meeting where the president isn't going to be there, or the, there are certain people that need to be or deserve to be briefed by the top, the president, the chief of staff to a lesser degree, the vice president, but uh, there's the national security advisor. Those people should have a line of communication. You don't have to go there every day and hold their hands, but you should be seen by them, especially at a time of two wars. You should be in communication with them, and you're in the ICU semi-conscious for the better part of a week, you're probably, and that's all we know so far. This is a remember at the beginning of this story, the story was, hey, uh, Austin had a, he's in hospitalized because of complications due to an elective surgery. It was elective, like, what was he getting a nose job? Is he transitioning? What's going on? No judgment, but was what was he doing? What were these elective procedures? And then yesterday we found out, uh, not super elective in so much that it's elective elective. It's more like, uh, you know, he's got prostate cancer and they're trying to save his life. Huh? That's not elective. That's, I want you to fix my deviated septum or I want to have uh, liposuction or implants. Or, that's elective. I want to have some cosmetic. My ears stick out a little bit too far. I want to have my ears pinned back. That's elective. The, if you don't do this, it'll kill you eventually kind of thing is not super, if that's elect, I mean, maybe up in Canada, maybe that's the way the left views everything. They really do seem to love assisted suicide. So assisted through suicide through benign neglect from the medical profession, maybe that is how they view elective things. But when you hear this administration tell you anything definitively, you should take note and remember that this story now, This story was elective surgery. Now it's cancer. Bad reaction to it was an infection, some sort of it's evolving. So either the White House is lying about what they knew when or there was way more to know that the White House should have known that the White House was not told. They're kept in the dark over and they still don't care. They still don't. You're going to hear 
Kirby in a second, you're going to hear Kirby on beer, like, we got to make sure this never happens again. It's an outrage, blah, 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 blah. Is it really an outrage if nobody's fired? Is it really an outrage if there are no consequences for it? Is it really? It's, I am outraged. Are you mad? No. You can do anything about it? No. Well, how outraged could you possibly be if your response to said outrage is to yawn? I would posit that you are not super outraged. But that's just me. I, I understand how human beings work. Crazy. I'm not, I'm not uh, in the business of blowing smoke up anybody's rear ends. That's the professional communication class down in Washington, D.C., you know, now that I think about it, I don't know what's more disturbing. Is that the Secretary of Defense decides not to tell the White House anything? That's pretty disturbing. But then the White House, the Secretary of Defense can disappear and nobody notices for a week. Nobody notices for a week. There are people. The Secret Service protects the Secretary of Defense. If you want a scapegoat, I mean, this could be, you got to get rid of the... the uh, head of the Secret Service or something. There should be reporting. You're supposed to know where these people are. If you don't know where cabinet secretaries are, might I suggest you don't need those cabinet secretaries? Might I suggest you don't need those departments in some cases? Obviously, you need a Department of Defense, but if the Secretary of Education is nowhere to be found, is the world stage going to come to a screeching halt now? Not so much. You get rid, if you got rid of the Department of Education, would everybody go, well, I don't know what to do now. I'm completely lost. I doubt it. Seems unlikely. Considering we didn't have a Department of Defense until Jimmy Carter. Or I mean, not Department of Defense. We didn't have a Department of Education until Jimmy Carter. People don't know that. That's, that's what's amazing about this. That's what Ronald Reagan was joking about. There's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. Once the government does something, it's almost impossible to get rid of it. Department of Education didn't exist. By the way, education was much better at the time. Federal government gets involved. Department of Education is created. And Ronald Reagan tried to and campaigned on and fought to get rid of the Department of Education in the early 80s, less than a decade after it was founded, and no, it was not. And the argument was what they always do. He's trying to gut education. He's with the government didn't do anything for education for 200 years in this country. And the country did just fine without it. How do we dial back to the way things were seven years ago? and go, Oh, you're going to bring about the end of civilization as we know it. How will people survive? <laughs> well, if you can't live without government, I would ask you how well living with government is working out for you. Look at our education system. Are things good? In fact, the only thing I can ever remember government, and this was back when I was doing health policy at the Heritage Foundation in like 2004, 2000, 2004. In the late 80s, there was a Medicare drug program. Now you sit there and you go, no, 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 no. The Medicare prescription drug program wasn't passed until George W. Bush. You're right, for now, the one we have now. But there was a time in like 87, 88, something like that. Can't remember the name of the program, but it was a prescription drug benefit added to Medicare. And it cost seniors something like $3 more a month or something like that. It wasn't a whole lot of money. 
And senior citizens are absolutely crazy. And this is one constituency that if they don't like something and they make it known, politicians worry about it because senior citizens show up to vote. And there's famous footage of Dan Rostenkowski, who was a Democratic member of the House of Representatives out of Chicago. He was chairman of the uh, either House Ways and Means Committee or the Appropriations Committee. Very powerful committee chairman. He went to an event with his constituents and the senior citizens were throwing themselves on the hood of his giant, like, Lincoln Continent. There's a lot of, There's a lot of square footage on that, that hood. And they were banging on his car. They were mad that the prescription drug benefit that they were all given, quote-unquote, forced to accept, was going to cost them more. I think it might have been, like, 12 bucks a month or whatever. It wasn't a whole lot of money, relatively speaking. But they were mad, and they were voicing their uh, anger all across the country to the point that Congress quickly before, I don't think the program even lasted a year, Congress repealed the program. Killed. It was the only time an entitlement ever went away. Now, they didn't have time to set it up. Part of the reason Obamacare is still around is it was passed and it wasn't implemented for three years. They wanted to make sure that it got past the next election. So all the hell that broke loose and the people were losing their plans didn't uh, get a chance to vote immediately out of anger for president. Once the bureaucracy had been set up for that, it became much more difficult to alter, let alone get rid of. But the prescription drug benefit in the 80s, that one didn't have a chance to set up. People were just immediately getting the consequences. And the Washington learned from that. They learned that you have to implement things slowly so the great unwashed masses don't have time to realize how screwed they are. And by the time they do, it's too late and they're used to it. Gotta hate politicians. Let's get to this next audio from the White House press briefing. Enough tangents for now. There'll be fair warning. There will be more tangents. There will be blood. There will be tangents. So then Ducey, after Kirby, asked Kirby about, why should anybody believe anything this way it says? And uh, Kirby tossing a word salad. Then Ducey gets a little bit more um, direct. See, because there is a really good question there. And sadly, in a room full of, I've been in that room a bunch of times, it's, it's a small room. It's way smaller than it looks on TV. But it holds, they cram a lot of people in there. So we'll just say that there's 75 to 100 people in there. In a room of that size with that many people in there who are, you know, super journalists, speak truth to power crowd and all of that, Peter Ducey's the only one who's going to bother to ask the question. He's the only one who's going to have the content in the front of his underpants to ask. Now, if it's Trump, if it's a Republican, they all suddenly stand up 10 feet tall and bulletproof. They're trying for their uh, Pulitzer auditions and demanding answers. Demanding answers and interrupting anybody who is trying to give them answers. But when it's a Democrat, they all fall back asleep and, I don't know, ask questions about knitting and cats. So Ducey then goes back for another bite of the apple. And the, the important question is, if this administration, because we don't know where the community, if you can consider it a communications breakdown, we don't know where the communications broke down. We don't know. We're only going on the White House's word that the White House was kept in the dark. There's really no reason to accept that at face value. 
but there's no real journalism going on to get to the bottom of it to find out whether or not it actually is true. There should be, wildly important to know, I would think. But there's a possibility that the White House was not kept in the dark, that the White House kept the press and therefore the American people in the dark. What's always amazing to me is when you find out that uh, this administration has been lying or whatever, there's no outrage from the press. Remember, the Trump administration, Washington Post, kept a rolling total. Donald Trump's lies and the whole, they still cite the 30,000 lies, whatever it was. And if you look at them, some of them were like, hey, Mr. President, what's the temperature today? I don't know. It's nice. It's 50 degrees. You know, realistically, it was 63 degrees. The president was wrong about that. There's a whole lot of things that are insignificant and a whole lot of things that are conjecture and opinion that they counted as lies because they wanted to pad it. The democracy dies in darkness crowd has no such compunction, no interest whatsoever in holding this administration accountable at all to the point that they don't even entertain the prospect that this administration is keeping people in the dark. Well, Ducey is. Ducey at least entertains it and says, why would we believe this administration on anything like, say, the president's health, which at 81 years old and in his state of uh, decrepitude that is undeniable at this point, could, is a completely valid question. The real scandal isn't that they would keep this from the public. It's that I think that the media would be complicit in keeping it from the public. But that's, that's neither here nor there. Listen to this exchange. But if the administration is going to go to such great lengths to keep secrets about the defense secretary's health, how can anybody be certain that the administration would not go to the same lengths to keep secret problems with President Biden's health in the future? If, if you could logically argue, and you can't, but if you could logically argue that How, the minute He's wait, 81 wait, years old. Wait a second. Just give me a second What's here, bub. There I'll get there. If, if the administration made some sort of Machiavellian effort uh, across the board to, to, to keep this from getting public, then I think your question has merit. And, and certainly is a fair one. I don't think it's a fair one because that's not what happened here, Peter. What happened here is the Secretary of Defense, uh, for whatever reason, I can't answer the question why, uh, that information wasn't shared. It wasn't shared widely in the department and it worse? certainly wasn't shared with you the interagency. Know. It's, not, it's not good. It's certainly not good, which is why, again, we want to learn from this. We want to, we want to make sure that it doesn't happen again. We want to make sure it wouldn't happen again. It's not good. Why do you not know? Okay, I get it. You uh, you didn't know. I'll give you that you didn't know in this scenario. So you didn't know. Now you do know. Why the hell aren't you demanding to know why you weren't informed? Right? Shouldn't that be the next stop? You've established the facts. Now you have to establish the reason for the facts. The bad decisions. You've declared there to be bad. Now, if you don't want to tireless, if you are not demanding answers as to why the Pentagon, now it should be the press corps demanding it from the Pentagon, and it should also be the White House demanding it from the Pentagon. I can understand and I would expect the Pentagon to yawn at the press sniffing around asking questions, even though they're really not. But if they were, they go, yeah, you're, you're, I don't care. 
you're the press. I don't owe you anything. But if the White House calls and the operator or the person taking the phone call goes, ah, shut up. What do you, you want to know about why it is we didn't tell you? That? Yeah, yak, 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 yak. Who cares? If you get that kind of answer from the White House or from the Pentagon to the White House, then we've got a really serious problem. That's when multiple heads should roll. These are not questions that they're going to have to go over. The White House calls up and says, hey, what the hell, man? And the Pentagon goes, well, uh, we're going to look into that. We'll, we don't know either. We'll get back to you on that. The Pentagon is where the answers are. The Secretary of Defense is the one with the answers. The Secretary of Defense should give those answers. But instead, what do we get? We get the Pentagon has launched, I believe, a 30-day investigation. A 30-day investigation. You give me 10 minutes, I get to the bottom of it. Or it will find out that the only human beings who could help us get to the bottom of it, which is the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Defense's chief of staff, are not at all interested in cooperating, at which point they should be fired. That nobody has noticed that, that the White House doesn't seem bothered by that, is kind of a problem. And makes me think, at least publicly what they're saying, makes me think that maybe there is more to this. Maybe the White House knew more than they're letting on. Because any president would be pissed off. You should be pissed off that you've been kept in the dark on this thing. If you're not, then you knew. Or you don't care. If you don't care, that's a problem in and of itself. But it would be interesting because they can pick up the phone, they can get to the Secretary of Defense and go, what the hell? Now they say that the, the Secretary of Defense told his chief of staff, who then got the flu and forgot to tell the White House. Forgot the flu and forgot to tell the White House? Did the flu hit the chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense the second she got, I think it's a woman, she got off the phone with the Secretary? Yes, sir, Mr. Secretary, I will let the White House know immediately this is wildly important and thank you and your country thanks you and Good luck in the surgery and may everything, and hopefully everything will be fine, whatever. And then you hang up the phone and you go, oh, God, now I feel horrible. I'm going to call the White House in just a second. But first, I'm going to drink a complete bottle of NyQuil. And I'm a lightweight and it hits me and puts me out. And immediately I'm in bed for the next three days. And then I go, oopsie, I forgot. If you've got the flu, even if the Secretary of Defense is like calling you at 10 o'clock at night, and we make sure that the president knows. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Don't worry. I'm going to bed now. I'll do it first thing in the morning. You wake up in the morning, even if you slept in. Shouldn't there at a minimum be a nagging sense of, wasn't there something I was supposed to do today? Isn't there something, something somewhere? I don't know, vague memory of these sorts of things. But no, three days is what they tell us. Three days, except that he was rushed to the emergency room on Monday and we didn't find out until Friday. And then the story since then has evolved. 
well, he's in intensive care, actually. It was an elective surgery. No, actually, it wasn't elective. It was this, that, and the other thing. We don't know where the story will be tomorrow. All we do know with any certainty is that the, the press corps and the White House are praying to God there's no new revelations coming out so they can stop talking about this and start complaining about Republicans again. And that brings us to Karine Jean-Pierre. You can see why Karine Jean-Pierre, she's so, she's so historic. If I mentioned she's historic, she's so historic. She, uh, she actually got a question, too. You wouldn't know it. It's the same press conference. Because you're sitting there going, why is it that the uh, State Department's or whatever, why is it that Kirby is there fielding questions about this and not Karine Jean-Pierre? Kirby has his own office, presumably someplace else, but he's at the White House an awful lot. Well, you can see why in this clip, because Karine Jean-Pierre, even though she's, I feel like I could answer these questions with the White House spin at this point. She can't do a very good job of it. She's still trying to read from her teleprompter. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. You're a historic White House press secretary. How did the president not know until this morning that it was cancer? How did five days go without knowing the death? That is something that we're trying to find. No, I, I hear you, but that is something that we are going to get a sense of this process, right? That's why they're going to do a review. That's why the Pentagon's going to do a review. That's why the chief of staff put out a memo to cabinet, uh, cabinet uh, to the cabinets on protocols here to get a sense of what, uh, how they've been moving with this process and how we're going to continue to move forward. We do not want this to happen again, obviously. Uh, but, you know, we're going to get a better sense once the Pentagon does the 30-day review uh, to see how this occurred. Obviously, this is not something we want to see. Obviously, this is not. Does it sound like these people are pissed at all? You're listening to Kirby. You're listening to Jean-Pierre. Now, granted, they haven't been wronged directly, but the tone, part of the job of communication of a press secretary, as somebody who used to be a press secretary for a United States senator, is to not only convey the words, but the tone of it. And it just in a game of telephone, you can't help but sort of also convey the tone of what's going on. If somebody's pissed off, but if you wrote it down on paper, the words they used, um, you wrote it down on paper, you think, well, I don't know what their, I don't know what their mood is. I can't tell from this. That happens a lot. Part of the job of an effective communicator is to also convey the tone of the person um, being communicated on behalf of, I think would be the way to put it. And both of these people are like, hey, man, we don't want this to happen again. Hey, man, they're just this side of like a valley girl going, hey, man, or a surfer dude. There's Spicoli in, in uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Hey, bro, I don't know what to tell you. Let's party. We sure hope this doesn't happen again. That'd be a real bright. They're Matthew McConaughey. Hey, man, all right, all right, all right. Next time you get cancer, you tell me, okay? I'll drive you to the hospital. It's all good. I know a doctor. I'll make a call. It'll be good thing I like about oncologists is I get cancer and they stay the same age. No, that's insane. There's no outrage. There is more of a, can we put this behind us kind of attitude, which is fine. I understand if you've got something else you want to message, you want to get to that. But as a communications professional, you recognize that if you want to get to grandmother's house. Grandmother's house is the message you want to convey. You've got to go over the river and through the woods. 
and that is there are going to be certain things you have to address. You can't avoid addressing. You've got to go through the woods, even if you don't want to, because that's what people want to know about. Then you'll get to grandmother's house and you can have the cakes and the pies and everything. These people don't seem to understand that or they don't seem to care. There's a whole lot of stuff we don't know about this yet to come, I suspect. It's just a matter of whether or not the media is going to maintain its level of interest to get to the bottom of it, or there will be some shiny object comes along that maybe will distract or allow them to talk about something else. Since we're talking about, uh, well, national security issues, you've got to talk about the border. You've got to talk about the border. I've got an audio of a, a member of Congress talking about how they need uh, her district. Welcome all there. As many illegals as you can shovel her way because she needs help with redistricting. I'll explain why that is saying the quiet part out loud in a second. But I'm looking at the online thing and I see this from Morning Joe. Joe Scarborough. I don't know how he lives with himself. I mean, it's for... He's being punished. He's married to Mika. Imagine, that was the old joke, the third time's the charm. Mika's his third wife. Imagine Mika Brzezinski being the charm. Wow, what was the curse? But uh, he's sitting there talking to a panel of five other rich white people. It really really is amazing. You're not allowed to have opinions on things if you are of the wrong skin color over at MSNBC. But when it comes to immigration, as long as it, that's all trumped, if you're a leftist and you're, you're allowed to do it, if you're whatever, then it, it doesn't matter. You, being a Democrat it gives you immunity to everything. But looking at the panel, there's Mika, there's Joe, there's Willie Geist, there's Caddy Kay from the BBC, there's Chris Matthews. They dragged him out. The, uh, they opened his crypt and he came out. And there is a former Missouri senator. God, I can't remember her name. I'm looking right at it right now. But Claire McCaskill, there it is. Claire McCaskill sitting there. Each one whiter and richer than the other one. Their camouflage in a snowstorm is nudity. And they completely disappear. They are chameleons in a blizzard. If they're nude. Except for maybe their money. Claire McCaskill, by the way, is filthy. She's probably the richest of all of them. Uh, her family owns a private jet. She's a big climate activist, flies around on private jets because, you know, TSA, what's the carbon footprint of a TSA pre-check line relative to the family's Gulfstream? Don't answer that. Anyway, Morning Joe says uh, four of they're going after Trump on immigration. It's amazing to me that with what's going on, there's no, you can be for uh, not necessarily open borders, but you can be for, the, what do they say, the uh, comprehensive immigration reform, a pathway to citizenship, amnesty, whatever the hell you want to call it. You can be for that sort of thing and still look at the southern border and recognize the absolute anarchy that it is and the absolute national security threat that it is. People just pouring in from all around the world. And the Biden administration saying, welcome, welcome, come on in, whatever. We'll see you in like eight years, maybe if you show up to court, but come on in. We're not going to even check you. And oh, by the way, the last time the Secretary of Homeland Security, which I assume is ironically named in this administration, 
testified before Congress, he could not say how many of the people, a lot of people, who have been caught, who are on the terrorism watch list, who are caught crossing the southern border, he couldn't say how many of them were deported. Now, anything other than all of them is an unacceptable answer. But this guy, Mayorkas, was like, I, I don't have that information. I don't have that information. Right? Really? That should be the number one priority, right? Hey, don't let terrorists across or suspected terrorists across the southern border. So the answer should be none of them are in here. We immediately trebucheted them back into the Gulf of Mexico. We put them on the next flight out of here to Antarctica, to anywhere. We didn't care. We took them to the airport, and whatever plane was going out of the international terminal, they were on. They're gone. Instead, we get the, I don't know. I, I, I don't have that information handy with me. Okay, great. Great. Good job. Good job, stupid Professor X. Uh, so Morning Joe says this morning, instead, they're doubling down on that Donald Trump is racist, that any Republican is racist for wanting to secure the border. Joe says four of Trump's five children had moms who were immigrants. Trump was born to an immigrant. His golf courses, buildings, restaurants. He built his crumbling empire on immigrants. Yet he's sitting here being the guy who hates immigrants. It's such nonsense. <laughs> right now, up in, well, down in hell, Joseph Goebbels is looking up, giving a standing ovation to Morning Joe. The, the middle-aged, over the hill, actually, Harry Potter. That's what he looks like. He's applauding him. Goebbels from hell. Pl applauding. I'm going to send him a nice handwritten note. Wow, you, you, you learned from me and you did it. Well, what do I mean? Goebbels was Hitler's propagandist. The progressive propagandist. That is pure propaganda. What Joe is doing is what the Democrat establishment has been doing forever. They're conflating legal and illegal immigration. You confuse the two. You conflate the two. You use terms like migrants to confuse it even further. But migrants migrate. They come in when there's work to plant the crops, and then they go somewhere else when they're, they leave after that work is done to find more work. And they come back when the work is to pick the crops, to harvest the crops, and then they go back, find work. They migrate. They go with the flow. The, the nomads used to do that with the noble Native Americans used to do that, with the uh, the animals. They'd follow the herd. They'd migrate with the herd. Wherever it was, wherever it went, that was their food supply. They had to. These people are not migrants. There's a difference between migrant and immigrant. That's why they're two separate words. They have two different meanings. I just told you what... Migrant was an immigrant is somebody who immigrates, somebody who goes, moves to a country with the intent of staying. These are illegal aliens. These are illegal immigrants. They aren't going anywhere. These people crossing the southern border didn't pay $10,000 a head to drug cartels, killing tens of thousands of Americans every year so that they could march them up the Mexican coastline to come here for three months' worth of work in an amusement park during the summer months and then march right back down to their homes after that. If you believe that, you're insane. These people are not planning on going anywhere, and the Democrats are not planning on trying to get them to go anywhere. 
They don't want them to go. Well, they don't want them to go to like Chicago. They don't want them to go to New York. They don't want them to go in certain places because they're being overwhelmed. It's amazing how a city of 8 million people like New York can be overwhelmed by 20,000 illegal aliens being brought into the area. Like, wait, but you're telling Eagle Pass, Texas, a town of about three city blocks in New York, you're telling them they're going to have to deal with this. They're just going to have to learn. It's their problem. You're a welcoming city. Once somebody takes you up on that offer, it's suddenly, no, 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 no. Can't do that. Can't have that. By the way, just to give it further context, to let you know how much or how little, how much they care for the illegals and how little they care for Americans. We have a situation where in New York City, a Brooklyn school is going back to virtual learning, not because there's some COVID outbreak, not because of any other reason other than the city of New York is moving illegal aliens into the school. They can't find places for them. They don't know what to do. So they don't care. This Brooklyn school is going to displace thousands of students, 4,000 students, so they can house 2,000 illegal aliens. This is uh, a letter sent out by Ina Vernikov, V-E-R-N-I-K-O-V. I think Vernikov, I think I actually pronounced that. She's city council member up there in New York in the 48th district of Brooklyn. Now, this is a city council. Can you imagine the size of government if they're at a minimum 48 districts for the city freaking council? Data January 9th, 2024. Statement re-emergency overnight transfer of migrants from Floyd Bennett Field to James Madison High School. Uh, Floyd Bennett Field probably doesn't sound super... I don't know. I assume it's indoors. They're not going to be even in December, if they were doing this in December, be housing sweet, sweet migrants, your moral betters, out in the field. So I imagine they were housed, but it's just inconvenient. So they want to take them over to high school. It says, I have been informed that due to incoming storm effects, New York City around, in uh, New York City, around 2,000 migrants from Floyd Bennett Field will be transported to James Madison High School this evening and will be occupying its gymnasium and auditorium overnight. This is both unacceptable and entirely foreseeable. So she's, it, all of these liberals are nimbies, not in my backyard. Open borders, open borders. Wait, what are you going to do? Oh, you can't do that. Don't do that. Do it over there. I don't have a problem with it. Do it here. I have a problem with it. But it is amazing how these things work. They're going to displace a whole bunch of students. Virtual learning. Did we not just go through a pandemic where it was pretty unambiguous about how well distance learning worked. Now, Brooklyn ain't exactly the richest neighborhood in the world. So robbing these kids of some education is not going to help them at all. 
But they're doing it anyway, because why? Because why not? There are high winds outside. You can't have high, can't have people who are not here legally out in high winds or even affected by high winds. Once you set this precedent, you have set this precedent forever. You've prioritized, and you're sitting there going, well, Derek, are you heartless? Are you heartless? Well, yeah, I guess, maybe. Not really heartless. I just prioritize American kids over non-Americans. It's old-fashioned. Now, it's funny, as these leftists are quick to do what? To cry racism. They cry racism over everything. What do you think of the demography of this school is? Who is getting screwed over in this thing? What is it? Go ahead, take your favorite guess. It doesn't matter. You know exactly what I'm saying, what I'm doing, what I'm talking about. And that's the case. They're just going, they don't care. They do not care. Now, I do love how the Texas governor is still saying, I don't care. I'm going to keep shipping them to you. You're going to keep shipping it to you. The New York mayor and now the New Jersey governor have both tried to uh, implement rules that (laughs) any bus company that is trucking up illegal aliens to New York or New Jersey, they want and they're trying to mandate by law 32 hours notice to prepare for them. They want to know 32 hours ahead of time. Now, it doesn't take 32 hours to drive that distance, especially in a bus with a bathroom on it. It doesn't take 32 hours to drive up that far. They just want to slow down the process. But you can't. You can't. They have no right, no control. You can't say, you can't bring these people here without giving us a big enough heads up. That, Why, that's racist. You don't want more black and brown people trucked into your area. They're trying everything they can to avoid saying what they know they have to say and doing what they know they have to do. The one thing that would stop all of this is stop being a sanctuary city. Stop being a sanctuary city. Stop advocating for the screwing over of places that aren't you now that you're feeling it. And the ultimate irony is that their defense that they've been trying for the longest time is they're just grabbing, they're putting these these sweet migrants and bussing them up here. They want to go to New York. Have you ever been to New York? you ever been to Chicago? You've ever been to these cities where they're being shipped? They're not being shipped against their will. There are tens of thousands of people coming over the border every week. 300,000 people last month that we know of, that we caught. They're asked, you just walk into a room of 5,000 people and you go, hey, who wants to go to New York? Who here was, their ultimate plan was to end up in New York City. You're going to get, you're going to be able to fill a 50-seat bus pretty easily. They were going there already. If they were on their own, they all would have wormed their way there separately one way or another. All Greg Abbott is doing is making it efficient, streamlining it. And if you really think about it, he's probably cutting down on the carbon footprint. He's an environmentalist. He's cutting down on the carbon footprint of these illegals making their way from the Texas border up to New York by consolidating them, getting as many of them on one piece of transportation as possible. New York was absorbing this many people undoubtedly 
without knowing about it. They were, quote unquote, what the left always says, they're falling through the cracks. Well, Greg Abbott's actions are making sure that people are no longer falling through the cracks, that they're availing themselves of the social safety nets that these leftists have put in place for illegal aliens. Suddenly, when the Democrats get a big dose of the compassion they want, a big opportunity to express the compassion that they have claimed for themselves forever, the whole thing falls apart. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Oh, as we are welcoming the Statue of... There's a poem on the Statue of Liberty that says, Welcome. You can't close that border. Wait, what are all these people doing here all at once? Look, if you all come in separately and just disappear and we never notice you, I don't care. You come in all at once and now suddenly you're sleeping on the streets. That's not cool. We don't like that. People are noticing. That makes us look bad. <sighs> Whatever scorn you hold for these people is not enough. So since we're talking about the illegal alien problem and uh, <laughs> New York's dealing with it and the New York mayor going, enough already. The mayor of Chicago is on uh, TV the other day claiming it was racism that Greg Abbott was sending. See, sending people to Chicago and other cities run by black and brown people it's racist. How? Why? They never, of course, nobody on CNN said, how does that work exactly? So if it's racist for Greg Abbott to bus illegal aliens to Chicago because you're black and you're a worthless mayor and an incompetent boob and an idiot and a racist yourself, um, is it racist for an illegal alien to come across the border and make their own way to Chicago? I'm just curious. I don't know where the line is. That's what I want to know. Is is it if it's racist for a third party to say, hey, you're going to Chicago? Well, I can get you there without having to walk or hitchhike or really even spend any money of your own. You can go on that bus. If that's racist, then is illegal aliens going there on their own racist? Brennan Johnson, mayor of Chicago, wasn't asked that because that's not what CNN does. Journalism. It's not what they do. But uh, there are some Democrats out there who are saying the quiet part out loud. And it's just part of the because you sit there and you hear it all the time that, that, that and I've said it. The Democrats, they just want more future Democratic voters. And they think that these illegal aliens will become future Democratic voters if they are given a pathway, to, if they're granted citizenship by the government and by Democrats mostly, then they'll be loyal to the Democrats because Democrats will have given them what they sought so desperately. I'm not sure how much they actually seek it. I don't think a lot of them coming across really think about citizenship all that much. If you look at Amnesty back in 1986, they expected somewhere between 7 and 10 million people to claim it, the pathway to citizenship that was offered back then as part of a compromise that was supposed to secure our southern border and didn't. Um, the thing that the left always cites is Reagan granted amnesty. He also said it was his greatest regret as president because part of that was, the other part of that was they were going to secure the border and they didn't secure the border. Congress didn't provide the funds to secure the border because one Congress cannot bind the future Congress to those to promises unless it's already in legislation. Democrats just didn't do it. They lied. 
I know, shocking. I hope you were sitting down for that. But uh, they didn't do it. But ultimately, the lesson from that is the illegal aliens, majority of them weren't interested in citizenship. Now, back, it was different. Those people were coming here just to work, sending remittances back home, and there was an inflow and an outflow of people. They'd come here, work for a while, make some money, and then go back home to family they had abandoned. Now we've got the family coming. Now you got the whole family coming. That's the difference. It lets you know that these this current crop ain't planning on leaving. You have to make it so they're unemployable and there's no social safety net. Then it makes it untenable. Then people go, well, I'm not, I can't stay here. This sucks. This isn't the promised land of welfare and whatever. But Democrats would love to make as many of them as humanly possible future voters because they believe they will get those votes. But there's more to it than that. There's also redistricting. Every 10 years, our government, by constitutional decree, has to do a census. It has to do a headcount of everybody. Why? Because they have to know, you know, there are 435 members of the House of Representatives. They have to know where those people are. If, if Montana, which has just over a million people, this is screwed up because for a long time, it's about 250,000, depending on the district, 250,000 to uh, 500,000 people, somewhere up to eight, seven, eight hundred thousand would be a congressional district. Montana had a million people and they had one member of Congress. They should have had two for a very long time with that many people, but they just didn't. They eventually got it last time around. But the census was a big part of discovering that. California has so many members of Congress, 46 or something like that, because it's a direct correlation to the number of electoral votes a state has. But they have that many because they are our most populous state, right? At least, therefore, our least populous state have the least members of the House of Representatives. But every state has two senators, which is the beauty of our bicameral legislator, legislature. But <clears throat> the number of people who live in a state is all that matters. Whether or not they are old enough to vote doesn't matter. Whether or not they are here legally doesn't matter. So the more illegal aliens that get into a state, the higher the population. The more, well, they have to, every 10 years when there's a census, now there's always a push at the census going, well, we, the census workers, they scare the illegal aliens. They might not get it. They want to do statistical sampling. Why? Because illegal aliens might not answer or open the door because they're afraid that the census worker could be a secret immigration worker, a nice person, and they're going to get deported. So they don't answer it. The Democrats spend a lot of our money trying to make the illegal aliens feel perfectly comfortable to answer the door, to fill out the census forms, to make sure because they want that desperate headcount. Because federal spending per district it's also based upon population. That population is irrelevant. Whether or not it's, you know, you have 10 million people live in this area. 
well, five million of them are here illegally. We should only really care about five million of them because they're American. Nope, it doesn't matter. You get the money for 10 million people. That's how it works. Democrats know how to gain the system, know how to rig the system. Republicans don't know how to even talk about the system or explain the system. So this is Congresswoman Yvette Clark up in New York. She says the quiet part out loud. She accidentally admits that this is really, she wants the head count. She, her district can absorb a whole bunch of illegals because she needs them for redistricting. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. We have a diaspora that, that can absorb a significant number of these migrants. And I, that, you know, when I hear uh, colleagues talk about, uh, you know, the, 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 the doors of the inn being closed, um, no room in the inn, I, I'm saying, you know, I, I need more people in my district but just for redistricting purposes. And those members could, could clearly uh, fit here. <laughs> I need them just for redistricting purposes. If they discover that I've lost 40,000 people in my congressional district because of my god-awful policies that I support and the local government's god-awful policies they support, like California's been hemorrhaging people, if, then my district might be redrawn to make me less safe. And if it makes me less safe, I could lose my job. I don't want to lose my job. <clears throat> That'd be horrible. I'd have to actually work for a living. Nobody wants that. Not in this economy. The last thing you want to be in Joe Biden's economy is unemployed. You're not supposed to admit that, but that's really what it is. And that's what they're talking about. It is about government benefits to a certain area based on population, not legal population. A few years back, Republicans, I think it was the Trump administration, sued or they didn't sue, they were in charge. They'd set rules up for the census to count citizens and illegal aliens. Count them all, but separate them out because the apportionment of members of Congress should be based on American citizens, not the population in whole that includes illegal aliens or legal aliens, as a matter of fact. Legal aliens don't have any right or reason to expect representation in our government. Citizens are the ones who are supposed to be represented by our government. Seems non-traversial, doesn't it? It seems like everybody, yeah, well, of course, government, illegal aliens should not be a factor. in the Democrats sued. Democrats won. Democrats successfully blocked the Trump administration from being able to separate out numbers so we know how many citizens there are in a specific district, county, city, state, and how many non-citizens, illegal aliens, there are. Why would you do that? Just ask yourself that. There's no good answer <laughs> that goes, oh, well, that makes sense. Other than it's a purely political move. Why would Democrats want to do that? That's why they want to do it. They want to be able to redistrict in a way that benefits them. Yvette Clark is terrified that her district will be drawn into an area where there's far too many Republicans. And it'll make it difficult for her seat, difficult for her reelection. Or in the world of identity politics, 
her district could go from the majority, this one particular group, to a majority, a different particular group. And that could become problematic for Congresswoman Clark. She is an African-American woman. But what if her district became majority Hispanic? Now, to most people who are not committed Democrats, who are indoctrinated to believe that they can only be represented by somebody who shares the same melanin level as they do, it wouldn't matter. But you don't go too far from Brooklyn, where she is, to AOC's district. AOC's district was represented by Congressman Jerry Connolly. I think Connolly is right. He is a no-good white guy. The demographics of that district changed, and still Connolly was winning re-election. Why? Because he was, in, he was a, a noted Democrat. He wasn't in leadership, but he was in leadership in the party. I believe he was the head of the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee that year. He didn't bother running a much of a primary campaign because he never had to run much of a primary campaign. He'd been there something like 20 years. He was, he was entrenched. AOC is a bartender with an IQ just under that of her shoe size. And you look at it and you go, I don't need to deal with this idiot. But that idiot ran a campaign based on I'm Hispanic. Actually, it wasn't based on. It was exclusively I'm Hispanic. That's when she went from Sandy Cortez, which she had been known as throughout her life, throughout her high school in one of the richest areas in the country, Westchester, New York, and then up in college at Boston College at Boston University, wherever she went. She was Sandy Cortez. Then she realized, and the Democratic Socialists of America realized, that the, if they put somebody with a Hispanic surname on the ballot and really appealed to the majority Hispanic Democratic base in that district, they could get somebody. Connolly was a lefty, but he was not a radical lefty. The DSA wanted a radical lefty. They also needed to draw blood. And you look at the district and you go, well, the white guy representing a majority minority district. That ain't right. Let's try and find somebody who's A, the right ethnicity, and B, dumb enough that we can manipulate and let's help hoist them over the finish line. And that's where AOC came from. The Democratic Socialists of America threw her over the finish line. They did so by getting her to stop going by Sandy Cortez and start going by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Which you have to say it that way or it's a hate crime. Now. And it worked. Do you really think anybody seriously voting for somebody to represent them, anybody who says, you know what, I need somebody to really take Do you think anybody looks at her, listens to her and goes this? This is the leader we've been waiting for. She's an airhead. But she's an ethnic hero. The Democrats' identity politics works in a lot of cases. It worked in that case. And that's why you can get someone like Congresswoman Yvette Clark saying, I'll take more. Please send me more. I don't want to ha- I want to make sure that my district doesn't change. I need them for redistricting. I mean, to make sure that around where I live, around what I want, they will, uh, will have enough headcount. Not too many because I don't want to be overwhelmed. I don't want to be AOC'd. 
but I don't want my district to have to be radically redrawn. You look at it's weird, all these lefties going, well, Republicans only did well in the Senate race because they gerrymandered. I'm like, no, you idiot, the Senate is statewide. The Electoral College is statewide, has nothing to do with gerrymandering. Where there's actual gerrymandering, they turn a blind eye because most of the time it benefits them. Look at the district map here in Maryland. It's one of the most gerrymandered places in the country, if not the most gerrymandered places in the country. Baltimore is sliced up with little slices, and then they have huge swaths of places outside of Baltimore. Why? Because they know that they're going to get 90% of the vote out of Baltimore for Democrats, and they can water down what could possibly be a toss-up district. They can water that down by throwing it in with Baltimore. There's nothing in common the suburbs have with the city, but like Columbia, Columbia, part of Columbia is somehow, it's not anywhere close to Baltimore, but a district goes all the way down to there. And you're just sitting there going, how does this work? The map of these congressional districts looks like somebody sneezed on a wet Rorschach test. It's like, really, hell, it's like an acid trip. How did they draw these things? They drew them because their only objective, can't even say it was their main objective, their only objective was to get rid of as many Republicans as they possibly could. The state used to have three Republicans in its congressional delegation. Now it has one. Not because the demography changed, not because voting patterns changed. They haven't. It's because Democrats found a way to draw the districts to eliminate two Republican seats. They couldn't get rid of Andy Harris over there on the eastern shore. Too many conservatives. But it wasn't for lack of trying. And they'll try again, too. If they can get some illegal aliens over there or in this state, they can do it. They'll take it. They won't publicize it. They won't say the quiet part out loud like Yvette Clark. But they'll close their mouths, bite their lip, and sure as hell root for it. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm looking at this. Uh, There's big thing. Hunter Biden was up on Capitol Hill today because the House Oversight Committee was having a hearing on whether, you know, they're, they're getting ready to hold him in contempt for refusing to testify in private. And so he showed up and he sat there in the audience. And it was like uh, the Democrats, of course, immediately saw this a publicity stunt. He's sitting there in the audience and the Democrats said, well, why don't we have him come up here and testify right now? That's not how depositions work. If you look at every investigation the Democrats launched during the Trump administration and even after the Trump administration, during the Biden administration, when they were in the majority of the House, they would hold private depositions. Then if they wanted them, if they thought they'd get some political value out of it, they would call them to an open hearing. A lot of people, they didn't. If you watched any of that farcical January 6th select committee crap that they put together where they hired the ABC News producer to come in and and make sense of it all, try and win over the public, which completely failed, great use of tax dollars, all the clips where they, like, here's five seconds of Ivanka testifying. Here's seven seconds of Donald Trump Jr. testifying. All of those clips that they showed were from the depositions that the committee did. All of them. They were not in public committee hearings. Why? Because Democrats, you can't control the message in a public committee hearing. See? You don't know what a witness is going to say in a public committee hearing. 
If it's out in the public, they could say something that completely distorts the narrative that you're trying to create. So the Democrats did what has always been the case. They called people in for a deposition. Then people they found useful or wanted to trot out in front of the public, they would hold, they would have them at a public hearing. Republicans are only doing what is always done. And you've got idiots like Jamie Raskin out there going, well, why don't you just have him testify? He's right here. And you can see why his kids hate him. Oh, we can just have him testify right now. That's not how it works, Jamie. That's not how it works anywhere. But Democrats know that the media is not going to point out what I just pointed out to you. They're not going to say, hey, this is how things are done. This is the way it works. You take a deposition and then you have a public hearing if you find something worth it. Nope. They instead have Hunter Biden sitting there in the crowd. His lawyers. I don't know what his lawyer. I don't know who's paying his lawyers. I don't know what they're being paid. But... Um, they ran him out of there. The Daily Caller has this story. Hunter Biden flees committee hearing. Huh? Hunter Biden rushed out of a House Oversight Committee Wednesday meeting, Mark, uh, which was weighing whether or not to hold him in contempt of Congress. The first son made a surprise appearance at the start of the hearing. His presence in the hearing room immediately sparked tensions between Republicans and Democrats. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Hunter Biden defied a congressional subpoena, and then he left. Then he left. He was there for the shot, for the B-roll, for the nightly news, and that was it. He answered no questions. He went back outside with his Secret Service detail. Guy's like 52 years old. He's got a Secret Service detail, and he's living at the White House in a guest room. Now, did the president know? Is there any way the president didn't know? What does the president think of this? I'm sure that historic Corinne Jean-Pierre will say, we're not going to cut. That's a private family matter. Well, when the guy is living in the White House, it's not a private family member. He's not a prepubescent kid getting drunk doing keg stands in Georgetown on the weekend. He is an adult. He is a degenerate. Quite frankly, given his business ties, his income sources, and his own criminal activity, he is a national security threat. If he were not a blood relative of the President of the United States, I don't know if he'd be able to take the public tour. Be sure as hell wouldn't be allowed into the West Wing. But then again, Democrats have obliterated standards. Indeedly doodly they have. Anyway, that's enough for today. I'm going to watch the uh, debate and maybe flip over to Trump. I don't know. And I'll get back tomorrow and tell you how awful everybody was or how awesome everybody was. You know how it whirls. It's Thursday. It's almost Friday. Thank God. I'm so ready for a weekend already. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening.